welcome to Edinburgh Film Podcast episode 20. In this episode, I discuss Wim Wenders' Paris, Texas with three current MSc Film Studies students, Callum Simpson, Laura Chubadino and Tina Kandiashvili. We discuss the form, structure and characters in the film as well as themes of existentialism. I also ask Callum, Laura and Tina about the film and academic background and their opinion on why we talk about films in the first place. Like purely philosophically, uh, it's definitely like search for origin. Uh, we know this from the very beginning when he tells uh, his brother that um, he wants to sort of go to the place where he was conceived. And this whole idea that mother figure is uh, missing from all the male characters and she sort of symbolizes origin, like goes there. So. He's the protagonist, he's like Odysseus who's searching for his origin, for his home, mm-hmm. very general. Mm-hmm. I think also the, the idea of memory and <clears throat> remembering how we experience things and how we remember things, it's also a very important theme in the, in the movie. Like, for example, the bits when they um, watch the video from the past mm-hmm. and... Hunter gets to see his father again and he kind of remembers him again and also Travis sees his wife again and and also when Hunter talks with um, Anne and he asks her if she thinks that um, Travis actually still loves uh, Jane and he thinks he says that that's actually not Jane it's just a memory from the past so I think that this kind of identity slash perception memory is a big theme in the whole film yeah true and to sort of reinforce that idea I suppose you have Travis trying to find himself in the past but like you said the way you see the past first is through the like Super 8 footage which is obviously (laughs) archaic technology now Um, Finding himself in the past is obviously the big, big thematic concern. Mm. And are you familiar with Wim Wenders' work in general? Because he's, he's done quite a few films, hasn't he? Someone actually did a montage of his... Because quite a lot of his films are sort of road movies, I guess you could yeah. say. And there's a video of just characters walking. <laughs> it's just like pulled from his films. Oh, I think so. I've seen that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only other film I had had seen was Wings of Desire for the like sequence when Nick Cave's in it. That was yeah. like the <laughs> sole reason. Um, and yeah, this is my like second Vim Vendors film. Yeah, that that's a bit different. Um, yeah, yeah. Wings, uh, like he's back to Berlin, but his yeah American films are more about road trip and yeah. But still, I mean, this um, if we say that the origin is the question that Wim is asking, then I think Wings also thematically gets there. Um, yeah. And I suppose like the movie Strand is called Journeys of No Return and that sort of tells all in that sense as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's actually important to note or say that this film was, or still is, at the time of the recording, it still is on movie. It's available. Yeah. Um, by the time the podcast goes out, it won't be. Which is uh, great planning on my side there. But, um, yeah, um, 
Did you know that movie, by the way? I, I didn't until David told me. Um, and it's a great platform where, yeah. just for any, anyone who's listening and who doesn't know, it's pretty much an on-demand online platform where they add a film every day mm-hmm. and it's available for 30 days. Um, so were you aware of it, of the platform before? David mentioned it in one yeah, of the early exactly. seminars. Yeah. But one of the interesting things is it's free for like university students mm-hmm. here. Yeah. But I previously had a subscription through like a cine card at the Glasgow Film Theatre. Mm-hmm. And it used to be a year subscription there. But I actually heard they've changed it now. And it's only three months that you get as part of the card. So it just shows you how great it is that we get the, the annual subscription for free here. Yeah, yeah. I think especially as a student you can really benefit from and even like if obviously if you're not a student but as a student because there are so many independent films and the stuff that you're like oh I haven't seen this I haven't seen that and like I could literally spend hours there just you know watch all the 30 films in like one day yeah Yeah. Um, I'm just going to jump back a little bit because I didn't want to force the intro there but could you maybe describe what, what you do or what your focus is what's your background in terms of film what your names are as well because we haven't introduced <laughs> but um i'll just say that all of you are msc students um who are doing film studies at the university of edinburgh but you should we start with laura yes <laughs> <laughs> it feels like the first day in class is laura <laughs> yeah. sorry about that no, no it's fine well yeah we're all studying film. Uh, I'm actually from a completely different background. I'm from economics, so uh, I'm interested in um, philosophical aspects in movies, uh, especially this semester we're studying existentialism, and I think this kind of strikes me. It's really interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would like to maybe do the dissertation about it, we'll see. <laughs> Still too early to say. <laughs> well, you say that. Pressure's <laughs> <laughs> on. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so my name's Callum and uh, I studied at the University of Stirling uh, for my undergrad and it was in global cinema and culture and my dissertation uh, was entitled Palimpsestic Rome in the City Films of Federico Fellini and Paolo Sorrentino. So basically my argument was that both of them managed to capture the history of Rome in a very different way. Um, but Sorrentino's style was almost like a palimpsestic, stylistic approach to Fellini's. So he used that as like the first text and then sort of writes over it with his own style. And the wider argument was that that sort of mirrors Rome from like the ancient city to what's going on today. Sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Tina. Um, I did my baccalaureate here in this university, but in philosophy and theology. So, again, different background, but not as different as Laura's. Um, yeah, but I took uh, several classes in theology um, that were connected with film. And my dissertation as well was, it was on Gaspar Noy, but it was sort of theology that I was searching for in his films. And this is how I decided to mm-hmm. continue with like, film studies and, again, yeah, explore philosophy there because it's a... Uh, very comfortable medium for philosophy to come into action, in mm. a sense. Definitely. That's incredible. We were actually talking just before starting recording that um, it's interesting that everyone comes from a very different background when people come, come and study film here, which was definitely my case as well, um, which I think makes it for a bit of a challenge for the tutors mm. um, eventually. But it's just nice to know that it, you, know, you don't need to know every film and every director out there. <laughs> 
for to be able to come here and, and study. So, um, yeah, um, I've got so many other questions I want to ask you. Sort of continue with the film, and then I can just indulge myself, to be honest. Um, so let's talk about some of the main characters. Um, I think obviously the, the main main one is Travis, played by Harry Dean Stanton. Then we have Jane Henderson, his wife, played by Nastasia Kinski. Uh, Travis's brother, Walt, is played by Dean Stockwell. And then we have his wife, Anne Henderson. Her name is Aurora Clement, but she's French, so I'm pretty yeah. much I'm getting that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's start with the beginning of the film. So the first sort of half an hour, which is very slow, and you're taken through the desert and you don't really know what's going on. Uh, Travis is all silent throughout that part. So I'm kind of interested to, to know what your um, experience of that was and what did that trigger anything in you, any sort of expectation or anything like that? Well, you sort of, it, um, you see the idea of character and I think it's clear from the beginning that you'll see the development. He won't stay mute until the end and uh, the, the fact that Travis is sort of child um, is very well sort of shown in how, um, well, again, he's mute, he's lost, his brother calls him a child at some uh, point, he doesn't sleep, he doesn't eat, so he's concerned with the problems that children are usually concerned uh, with. And then at some point during that sequence, he uh, says the first word, and it's Paris, Texas, and we understand that this is the point, this is the moment when he sort of asks the question when he already orientates himself in the world. And it's also like uh, emphasized was um, the image because before that we have sort of landscapes and he's walking not on the road, he's walking in like emptiness sort of. And when, as soon as he's on the road in the car, as soon as he has the direction, he can ask the question and he asks, like, question as, like, where is he coming from, or where is he going, like, the most existential and essential <laughs> human questions we're all concerned with. Yeah, so. for example, in the beginning when he faints, and the doctor is waking him up, and he asks him repeatedly, who you are, tell your name, and he's confused, in this green light who kind of looks like a hospital somehow. Yeah. Uh, so this image of birth and childhood is really much stressed toward the movie. Also when um, he speaks with yeah the, the first few words he says and the, um, the brother says to him, oh, you're, after a while he says, oh, you're eating, speaking, you're actually coming from the land of the death, something like that, coming to the living. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And also another scene that really struck me in regards of the whole child situation is when he speaks with Anne and Anne offers him a breakfast. And she's like, mm, do, you, do you like uh, strawberry waffles? And he's like, yeah, but without saying it, he's just like nodding with his head. Uh, do you want him? And it's like, no. <laughs> so it's a very tender image of a mother... Uh, caring for his child and yeah I think it's very much on point with the whole yeah. and there's something sort of dreamlike about that beginning as well because 
the landscapes, like the, the sky and the clouds are almost so perfect. They're like hyper-real in a sense. They look like sort of painterly images. Um, and that kind of reinforces that idea. It's like you're not sure whether it's a dream or a nightmare or, yeah, if he's sort of returning to the living or... it's Yeah, it's really interesting. And then you've obviously got the music as well, which is so important to the film. Yeah. And that's predominant from the start. Mm. I was actually thinking um, when he's sort of wandering around, especially in the, some of the um, static shots, I was, I was not even looking at the character, I was looking at the clouds because I was yeah. convinced it was painted background. <laughs> yes. It real. And then in some of the shots where they're a bit you know, longer, um, and they're long shots from further away, you can tell that it's, it's all real. But um, especially some of the close-ups, I'm like, those clouds are not real. <laughs> <laughs> That's not real. <laughs> but yeah, definitely. That, yeah, that aesthetics has to do with the fact that Wanders is a brilliant photographer. I mean, exactly, yeah, yeah. and there, um, yeah, I think there was an exhibition in London uh, mm-hmm. of, of the landscapes he took while he was uh, working on this film. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this photographic eye of his is constantly present in this film. I yeah. yeah, they were Polaroids as well. Mm-hmm. They're really interesting, mm-hmm. they're brilliant. And then you've got Robbie Muller as well, the cinematographer, and he's got a really sort of individualistic style as well. Mm. I think one of the most uh, famous part of the film is exactly the sunset, the metallic sunset of Houston. It's one of the most famous aspects of this film. Mm. So, yeah, I think the cinematography part is pretty much important in the whole work. Definitely. Um, And there's something about the sort of as you were saying, as he's wandering around in the wild and then he gets in the car and then all of a sudden he starts to wonder, you know, where am I going? Mm-hmm. What's happening? And it's inter- what was really interesting to me is that whenever he was almost leaving that wilderness, he was so reluctant to do it. Mm-hmm. And that reluctance is, is expressed so well in how he's, you know, he doesn't want to get on the plane. And when he does, then he's like, this is so strange that we have to... Like, why are we flying? Why are we not connected to the earth and why are we not walking because it's been walking for what, four years yeah um yeah that that was i think this uh, whole, sorry this whole idea of like earth and um sky it's sad beautifully in the scene when uh they're having dinner for the first time mm-hmm. and we know that travis is sort of associated with water because the first thing he does is he drinks water then he eats the uh, ice even though there is beer in the fridge and like throughout entire film he's constantly associated with water he like passes by swimming pools blah blah and then um we get uh walt who's Walt, like electricity, and he's the most like rationalist guy in the film. Yes. In contrast to, uh, and he's not like natural part of the world. He's electricity. Then we get uh, uh, his son, uh, Hunter, and he's associated with air because it's like spaceships and his mm-hmm. room. Uh, but he sort of has mixture of this like two fathers. Yes. I mean, he's interested in, like, origin of the world and tells him the story of Big Bang, but scientifically. So, but, but he's still, like, air guy. And then female figures, both of them, Anne and um, Jane, yeah. they're sort of earth. Uh, the flowers in the house, uh, the, the dresses they wear, the color play. 
but yeah, but still, again, the story how Jane set fire to Travis and then her pink uh, bright jumper associates her with fire. So I think he, he makes this very clear and very smartly sort mm -hmm. of places each character to uh, the symbolism that he wants to sort of associate them yes. with. Yes, mm, this is a very good point, I think, yeah. Also, yeah, about the the... the something between the warmth of the fire and burning oneself with the fire, with the flame. So, well, this is already going to the, obviously to the end when they confront themselves to the, in the peep show scene. And this kind of idea of an, an emotion that is too intense, too much, and almost the need to go away, mm, and, but also being drawn to this uh, light, like it's something that really sparkles your life and brings you to life. So this metaphor of life as something scary and really powerful, and almost the idea that you don't really want to live, and the nature really much associated with this idea of not living, not taking responsibility somehow, not needing to choose, choose anything <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah, I think it was I mean um, there is a quote from Sheila Johnston who was published in the month of um, in 1984 and she's saying how Walt's home is built on a hill overlooking the freeway airport and railroads with vehicles constantly moving past in the background the very image of transience and as you say now that all the stuff about nature and how sort of static it is and mm -hmm. it doesn't move, it doesn't change. Yeah. I guess that really is highlighted when, especially because um, Travis spends a lot of time just watching the planes come and go all yes, the time. Yeah. And you really get this sense of just, you know, what, why is he looking? And he, he's, so, he, he's so almost cumbersome to, to be quick to move and mm -hmm. uh, be mobile. So, yeah, and it's interesting that they live just on the edge of the city exactly. and it's Walt's yeah. mm -hmm. home um, which is the one in opposition to the natural and the nature as mm -hmm. um, you were saying Tina you know? and I think that's there's something interesting about the oppositions in themselves so um, did you notice any other ones so like Walt is the representative of say the culture and the city and the electricity mm -hmm. and then you have Travis who's sort of natural the ground the earth kind of thing any, any other oppositions that you picked up on? One thing I would mention, just to go back to the, the discussion there, would be that you asked about the beginning, and it almost plays out like a Western in a sense. Mm -hmm. And his journeys are sort of cluttered by... It's like there's an opposition between like the Old West and then that new environment where it's like modernity against like the old western environment so you've got like billboards and petrol stations and you mentioned about like how out of place he seems in like a bar for example it seems quite simple but he's completely alien in that environment throughout yeah I agree and then you get simple things like when you see him I think it's after the first night he wakes up and it's like another nod to the western where he cleans everyone's shoes and he's yes. polished the boots and laid them out perfectly <laughs> again it's like yeah throw back to like the searchers or something like that it's really interesting and it, yeah it's interesting how he gives this almost a religious meaning because there is a very interesting scene Travis is 
crossing the bridge and there is a man standing and like screaming oh, yes. yeah, yeah. and he's screaming this like apocalyptic uh, quotes about how like everything will be ruined if we don't take care and he says like uh, mother green earth mm-hmm. again like showing the and he's on the bridge like looking at this quickly passing car so and the the earth side again if we go back to the idea of uh, origins and stuff it's it's uh, sort of religious, like non-apocalyptic part of it, uh, which is very interestingly uh, done. And Travis himself is, in a sense, a messianic figure, because if not Travis, boy would never find his origin, his mother. And Travis is the way which leads him there, but then Travis has to leave because it's not... He, even though it's imagination of we can say that Janie's mother figure for Travis as well, but she's not. I mean, it's his imagination, so she has. He has to continue his way. He has to find his, like messianic figures usually do. Like they bring mm-hmm. peace to earth, but then they continue their way, which is different. And I think it's amazing with how simple the story is how human the story is and how deep and like grand is the meaning of it mm-hmm. one thing I was going to say is like the only way Travis can find home in the film is by leaving it mm-hmm. yeah. and I think that buys into like his relationship with Jane as well it's like it's always about distancing himself in a sense mm-hmm. and he does it time and time and time again throughout mm-hmm. the film and I guess that's very actually what Tania was saying just now is that it's not only the Messiah that he resembles, it's also the hero of all every Western from the 50s and the searchers as well. Yeah. Um, so um, I think it's the book or the article by Sheila Johnson that actually does that pretty well, where she compares how um, Travis is basically this, this single hero who travels through the, the wilderness and the desert and then he saves the domestic but he cannot help him for himself so he has to leave it, he cannot be part of it, um, which is kind of interesting because it definitely did feel like a western in parts, especially at the beginning it's kind of insane um, yeah, so it's just interesting that you know the domestic is never for him to claim, it's there to be almost delivered to the other people but he's never he's never been a part of it also about this uh, when he wants to learn how to be a father, how to uh, appear like a father, and there is this very nice conversation with the, I think he, she's the maid, maid yeah. yeah. And the maid asks him if he wants to be, what kind of father does he want to be? And it's kind of like an acting uh, of reality. And this bit um, happens again when they walk together, him and Hunter, and Hunter reproduces the moves of the father, almost yep. like he's learning how to live. And Travis as well, learning how to live through imitation and uh, this kind of connection. They are both walking parallel, and then he goes to Hunter. Mm-hmm. Somehow, yeah. I think it's a very good point. And uh, the, like what you said about imitation... And then the search for the father, and it's like emphasized that it's yeah. the father, and like in Christian tradition, it's always God. And then he can be paralleled with oh, yes. Christ in a mm-hmm. sense, especially if we look at the first scene when he's lying in the like hospital, if we yeah, can well. call that hospital. <laughs> um, it's very similar to how Christ is usually represented after yeah. the cross. So 
that line is definitely mm -hmm. going there, like from father yes, to son, exactly. religiously, mm -hmm. in a sense. I'm just thinking about redemption, actually, and um, Travis's character, and how um, he gets drunk when he goes to Houston, and he, he does realize that his wife has become... Travis finds out that she's a prostitute, pretty much, and what I'm interested in hearing from you as well, did, were you ever surprised when it became transparent what Travis actually did and why he ended up in a desert and why she left him and she set him on fire as well. So because he basically explained that he was just becoming a bit aggressive, um, he was getting drunk all the time, very obsessively jealous. Was that a surprise to you or was that... Because he, he, he comes across as a very gentle character from the very beginning, the way he behaves when he's, he's with his um, son. Um, and so... Was that a bit of a surprise, or was that like, oh, well, you know, kind of natural? For me, it was a surprise. Yeah. I mean, uh, I kind of expected an explanation at some point of the movie, but I expected it to be more of a metaphor, something more subtle, whereas he actually explained it thoroughly what is going on in his mind. In all around, in the whole film, he's very silent, and he does this very little subtle actions, never going too much f further. Doesn't He doesn't want to intrude. He's always like uncertain whether to really approach, even, even with his son, Hunter. Even when he goes uh, to pick him up from school, he's like, he watch him, but whenever he sees that Hunter is not comfortable, he's like backing off and it's fine. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really expecting this kind of twist even though it kind of makes sense afterwards because in the in this whole being scared to leave being scared to harm other people and harm yourself and don't he doesn't really know it's almost like he doesn't really know how to behave in the world so somehow this um, it, it was it's kind of something that makes sense in the whole movie after, I mean, afterwards, though. Yeah. <laughs> because in the moment, you were really like, oh my god, <laughs> unexpected, yeah. I think it's also very logical, again, if we look at it from like this exactly. biblical messianic perspective, oh, yeah. the shift from Old Testament, mm -hmm. evil, violent God yeah. to Christ, who is loving and caring. And if Wanderers is doing something similar in these films, then this change, this shift is very logical. Mm -hmm. I think it fits really well. Yeah, that's true. What I was going to say was that, like, it seems that the sequence where they're in the bar together and Hunter sort of loses his temper with him and decides to go, like, back out into the car or whatever is, like, the perfect precursor to, like, the closing monologue. Because mm. you get an idea that... Like, for example, I think he orders, like, another drink when Hunter goes out, and you can tell he's just trying to, like, limp towards, like, a redemptive action at the end. Mm -hmm. And then it would almost justify, like, a return to, like, his bad behaviour of old in a way. Mm. I think, for me, that was a turning point, in a way, yeah. because at that point you don't really know what has happened. Yeah. But I was almost expecting things turning really ugly. Um, I was a bit worried that he would hurt Hunter or he would at the very least shout or you know do something that would give you a better idea of what actually happened. Um, 
which didn't really happen. So I guess um, my question is as well, is do you think he was entirely redeemed after he spoke to his wife and by the end, when he's leaving and he sees him in, in, from the car park, he sees both Hunter and um, his wife, I guess, um, in hotel room, just sort of, you know, getting back together after four years. Do you feel like you, you're satisfied? I think he is, to be honest, because, um, well, he saw her. That's the vital part of it. I mean, for the, like, largest part of the conversation, he's not looking at her, meaning that she's staying as a part of his imagination, but he faced her. And, well, she didn't, I mean, she set him on fire, actually. She's also (laughs) kind of guilty in that situation. So they faced each other. They saw each other, and they understood that the gap the abyss created from what happened cannot be filled. And it's it's right that he lives, and it's right that he... the, The fact that he unites Jane and Hunter is probably his redemption. It's the conclusion. He He did better than... He could, like, he did maximum of what he could and left. I, I, I was pretty satisfied with the ending, uh, to be honest. I think one of the interesting things about the ending is that in, like, conventional Hollywood cinema, he'd have been much more central than he was. Yeah. So you see all the actions in the lead-in and the amount of effort he's making to, like, reunite Jane with Hunter. But in the end, he actually isn't there. He easily could have been in the room along with them or looking for... Yeah, like some obvious sort of gratification there at all, and he actually just leaves it. And I think that's interesting. He and looks I, at them still. He, he looks at them, but I think he easily could have been in the room, or he could have been much more involved than he actually was, given the lengths of his effort to actually bring them together. Yeah, about this, I think that maybe to him, he could never be redeemed to himself, because to us, to the spectator, I think. Yeah, as you said, Tina, the the wife set him on fire. So it's like this, there's this. Which doesn't justify his actions. It doesn't justify, obviously, it doesn't. But still, and also they saw each other. Obviously, they weren't gonna come back together. But still, I think that important. The important thing here is that he's not redeemed to himself, but not because he hates himself or something like that. Just because he re- somehow realized that in this metaphor of Jane being a parallel of life, that he's not quite at ready for life, fit for life somehow. And so the decision to come back to nature and somehow live far away from life. And yeah. So in, in that case, do you feel like, because he started off as a child, mm-hmm. as you described earlier, do you think that he goes obviously through a transition throughout the film? And do you think that by the end he is this clear thinking individual who's who has become an adult, or he's actually retracting from that and going back to being a child and sort of and escaping really? I mean, we don't really know what, what happens to him afterwards, but we get the, the sense that as you said he's he's going off yeah. and he's not gonna be part of the, the, the sort of the city and the normal society almost. Well I think that it's different from the first time he parted because on the first time he was running away and he clearly say, said that because he said I ran and I ran for five days. Mm. So it's it was like really an escape. Uh, whereas in the end it's like a conscious decision, a clear decision. So somehow I think there is some kind of mm, growth path uh, going through the, the whole movie in his character. 
Uh, I think it more has sort of a circular structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, I believe, is going back to the state of a child to find his mother, was Big M, because we have again green light, like it was in the beginning of the film when uh, he's in the hospital. It's the same lightning. And um, <clears throat> what's very interesting, when he enters this club where his wife is working, we see the poster of like Statue of Liberty. Yes. And when he leaves, we see the poster of like Native American. Mm-hmm. So we, we see this like Statue of Liberty as a symbol of like modern values mm-hmm. and going back to like nature to the again origin of <laughs> the country where the uh, well where everything is happening in the film, but also like generally to the general yeah. wilderness origin nature. So probably based on how the symbolism works, he's going back to the state of child again. It's, he's going to take the path that he let Hunter mm-hmm. go through. But I also think that this is a conscious decision, as, as opposed to the irrational and, well, decision he made after. Definitely, I agree, yeah. So, yeah. But definitely, I can see as well a circular path. And I guess that makes you just, it just highlights the difference, doesn't it? Because mm-hmm. you can have yes. the same situation and exactly. you see the yes. progress then. Yeah. I feel like Callum wants to say something. <laughs> uh, I'm not too sure, actually. No, I, would, I think I would agree that it's, a, it's circular, definitely. Um, I have to say, for anyone that hasn't seen the film purely for the ending alone, I think it's must-see quite simply, <laughs> just for that last sequence and particularly the power considering how little he speaks. Like I looked at it yesterday and it's ten minutes long and it, that is pretty full on. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's like a strange sort of pseudo-confession that I don't think I've ever seen before. So I would definitely recommend it. Yeah. I think it's a very slow film, isn't it? I, I mentioned this before, but it really... Um, because we did, I don't know if you did this, um, I think it was part of Auto Cinema that I took when I was doing my master's with Pasquale, actually. Mm-hmm. And um, he was introducing us to a Greek director who I can't remember the name of now. But, Is um, it Angelopoulos? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's the one. We were introduced to Slow Cinema. Yeah. And that was quite difficult for me because that was very, very slow. This was slow as well, but I never felt like I was getting impatient. The pace was just so well structured, structured across the whole film that it really kept you just like focused even even more, which is kind of interesting because it really doesn't have any action scenes whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It just has obviously that climax at the end, but there's always something on going on, and I guess it's the dialogue that keeps you just keeps you in it. It's very, I mean, cool that you. Uh, uh, brought the Angelopoulos topic. I think they're very similar in what they're trying to uh, say with their films. I mean, again, road trip, same as all over Angelopoulos. The character like Odysseus is all over his films. Same with like messianic structure. And yeah, when I was watching Paris, Texas, Angelopoulos was the person I was thinking about. Mm. Very similar filmmakers. Mm. The other thing is like the economy from Harry Dean Stanton, like Laura mentioned earlier, the scene where they're just walking down the street and they're imitating each other. How he gets so much out of so little is amazing. And that's really, like, I find that quite funny, to be honest. In the earlier scene with the maid, when she sent him, like, if you want to be this particular dad, lift your head. 
he looks like an entirely different character just simply by like changing his body position. It's phenomenal. And then you get a similar thing at the end too because his like expression is almost mirrored by Jane's before their faces collide. And you can tell that they're like playing off one another. There's like a reactive thing going on there. And I think that's what makes it interesting, like irrespective of how much dialogue there is or action or whatever else. I think it's like there's an importance in the small details throughout the full film. And I think the performances, especially Harry Dean Stanton, yeah, I think I think his performance is just incredible. Yeah. Um, as you say, it, it is in the in the detail, isn't it? Especially when you have those close-ups where the camera just lingers, and you just get so much. Even even if he doesn't necessarily speak, but it's just. The sort of the, the way characters move around mm-hmm. each other, I guess, and their expressions, and it's it's quite um, amazing to see that, especially especially now, where I feel like we are overwhelmed with films that have very popular actors, but they're yeah, not <laughs> yes. refined perhaps. <laughs> but that's that's another topic. <laughs> um, we are running out of time uh, slowly but surely, so I kind of want to go back to sort of more general questions, because now that we talked about this film and it went completely which is amazing I have this question of like what, what, what do you think is the point mm. why do we talk about films and, and why do we have discussions like these and it's not just right here right now um, but in seminars and anywhere else or you know even with friends in, in a pub what, why, why does it matter why, why is it not enough for us to watch a film why do we feel the need to talk about it it's also uh, <laughs> it's somehow like sharing emotions and finding uh, a reasoning of something you feel and you're not entirely sure if you're the only person who feels it as well so if you, you kind of need someone else to tell you no I, I feel the same or also to disagree with you as to say no that's not the point and yeah, it's it's not enough to just watch the movie because it's not enough just to feel things to live. We we really want to share things to see what other people think if they feel the same thing as us. If we're crazy somehow, <laughs> or, <laughs> or it's, yeah, I, I feel like like it. Well, this is obviously one of the reasons. It could be so many more than that. Just like pure interest in film or interest in philosophy, interest in humanity, interest in, yeah, so many different topics. Yeah. Uh, I had a professor in this university who was also, like, into film and philosophy, and uh, it was, like, I was doing foundation, so it was, like, six years ago, and he said this quote once, it was that art is the only matter that has soul, and it just stayed in my mind, I guess, forever, and um, I think that this... Like, they're sort of alive, the films. And when you watch them, you go into a dialogue with film. And it's it's uh, every art, like books and mm-hmm. paintings, they talk to you. And you see sort of yourself in them. The perception works in a way that you see a reflection of yourself in the film, if your dialogue managed to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think this is the reason why there are, like, hundreds of interpretations of different films and yeah filmmakers try to make them concrete they put some exact symbolism very often but still I mean it's infinitely many interpretations yeah. like the, the number of people who watch films have 
their own dialogues with them, and and we discuss them because that's yeah. that's life. <laughs> like that's the meaning of it or point of it. Yeah. You could tell we were all film master students. <laughs> the first question you've asked where all three is wanted to speak immediately and like protect it. <laughs> what I would say is it's a relatively new art form still and the fact that you can like divide and subdivide it into so many different aspects is what brings the interest for me. I think we could frame this conversation about a philosophical reading, a reading that involved Christianity, one that was like thematic, one that was about style or formalism or any one of a million things, and we still easily could have spoken for the full hour. Um, and I think film on a wider level, um, like I listened to the podcast with Pasquale and David, the like best of list, and think like, Everyone almost has to pick and choose, and it's so hard to cover everything that when you find something that you like, you can like build a web of connections. So people might be listening to this and think, Angelopoulos next, or David Lynch next, or whoever else. Mm-hmm. Or I'll watch Harry Dean Stanton's films, or I'll look at films where Robbie Miller's been the director, or Vendors, or anyone in a million things. And I think that that's where the interest comes for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it genuinely does feel like whenever I have a discussion with anyone about film, or even just about life, because film is part of life most of the time, I find, okay. it's I'm, I'm running out of pens and papers because okay. I'm trying to write this down and that down, and I'm just, I just feel like I don't have the time to go through it all. And that kind of leads me to another question of mine. Um, and I discussed this in in our first podcast that we did with with David of this season why I basically say well you know I haven't actually seen that many films I prefer talking about them I prefer sharing the experience I prefer doing the research but when it comes to watching them I don't know I just don't have a great scope of films that I've, I've seen um, how, where do you stand on that do you feel like you could watch a film any day any time or is that something that you need to commit to or what is your experience <laughs> one thing I would say there was my dad had bought a vinyl it's Gil Scott Heron and on the inside it spoke about the conditions of how you were meant to listen to this music and it was like these are the things that you must do and in essence it was like listen to it in like it's optimum quality at a time when you are prepared to delve in and that is what I feel, feel like for film like I couldn't watch a film on my phone or on a laptop or I almost feel even if I'm watching it on like a small TV at home I'm cheating myself <laughs> and I think that's why like there's so many canonical films and even this one that I haven't really or I've yet to see in a sense There'll be others where maybe it's for university or for like other research where you just have to watch them and it can feel like point scoring in a sense. Like I've got lists from like the last few years where I've just noted every film I've watched, but there's still thousands more that I haven't got round to and predominantly that's because when I do get round to them I want to watch them in the best possible environment. Also I think you should be in the right mind to yeah. watch a specific film because if you go into a very philosophical movie or in, in a film like this without the right mind y- you wouldn't understand it it's just yeah <laughs> you couldn't really understand what's going on there and you would probably feel bored and annoyed it could be because you know you're not there completely so i feel I feel like you're right. You should be the right surrounding, the right time, 
it's very important to nail it. The right yeah. sense is to exactly. Yeah. Sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, I agree with the technology part of it. Like watching film on iPhone is not a good thing to do. But with mood, I don't actually have that. I mean, I really can watch it anytime. Like as long as I have time, mm-hmm. and like it's my favorite kind of leisure uh, film and like reading but mm. yeah more film and mm. yeah I, I can watch a good film anytime <laughs> and now that um, you said especially you, you two guys that you kind of you need, to, you need to be in the mood um, do you think having seen I'm just trying to find justification for me not having seen <laughs> but I'm, I'm genuinely curious do you, do you feel like perhaps you know, and that's anyone, whether that's you or someone else that you know. Do you feel like having not seen that many films as any other person or any other film student, does that undermine your level of knowledge in that particular field? Do you think, or can it like say that you know, you, you know, you have seen, I don't know, five hundred films more than Callum here? Do you think? That, Wrong answer. <laughs> do you think that changes um, your sort of level of knowledge, or maybe your expertise, or anything like that, or is that? You know, it doesn't. Film studies, especially as as a field, isn't necessarily about. Don't want to say it, not about films, but it's about a theory more or less, rather than obviously the subject as well. But you know, do, do you see what I'm? Yeah. yeah. I think that's like a common thing in criticism now as well, and I think that's maybe something I've been guilty of in the past. But like, my dissertation was about cinematic influence in a sense. So one of the things that I was trying to do is like draw out details that were intertextual and go back to other directors. So you're always looking for quotes, like filmic quotations in a sense. So I think in that way it is important, but like it can be connected to so many different disciplines. To just reduce it to one single thing would be wrong, which right. comes back to the question you asked us about film studies in general. And I think that's so true that you can relate it to so many different things and we all likely see that when we get on our dissertations too. Mm-hmm. That the scope of the work is going to be completely different and one might not be linked anywhere so closely to the other. Um, and I would imagine that's probably... That's one of the great benefits of film studies, I would say. Mm. Also, yeah... Uh, most of the films, I mean, what we're really studying about the films are ideas, and movies are just a way to convey an idea. It could be more on point in respect of uh, the specific uh, attributes of the tool, but also the same idea, could we, we could find it in literature and art as well, sculpture, and many different tools. So I think it's obviously, as Callum said, very important to watch movies but also I think that we're really interested in ideas more than the film itself most of the time I mean unless you are a phenomenology (laughs) 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 I mean (laughs) it depends on what you're interested in well I I agree absolutely Uh, it's over like film is a new way of looking at some of the ideas which is amazing and it's a way to keep old ideas alive Mm -hmm. like from philosophy, like my favorite part is Greek philosophy, and then when modern filmmakers yeah. apply <laughs> ideas from Greeks to modern world, it's amazing. But uh, I think it's um, what's most important in like watching a lot of films is that it's a culture that 
improves your taste, which is like reading a lot of books improves your taste in books. Uh, like uh, looking at many paintings improves your you you see a wider spectrum of things. So yeah, p perhaps it's good to watch a lot of them, you but comparison. Yeah, it doesn't make you yeah like limited in your knowledge if you don't watch that. But it's yeah, the the more the better. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, thank you so much to all thank three you. of you. You thank are you. absolutely brilliant. <laughs> you just put me to shame so much. Uh, no, Jenny, it's been grand um, talking to you, so thank you so much for your time. Thanks thank for you. inviting. <laughs> yeah, thank you for inviting us.